It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody could ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants Mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, presented by New York Lottery. Thanks so much for being with us. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow. Multiple ways you'd interact with us here on the program over the next 60 minutes, 201-939-4513. You could also use hashtag GiantsChat on Twitter or directly interact with the two of us. I am at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at GiantsWFAN. A reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network brought to you by Investors Bank on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. we got a jam-packed show. Later on, we will talk with Patty Trainer, who has covered the team for multiple decades. She's got a new book out about the rich history of the Giants organization, so stay tuned for that. We'll also look ahead to the Monday night matchup with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And speaking of that, Paul, it's kind of crazy whenever a team plays on a Monday night, and the fact that the Giants are coming up on off a Thursday game, we have to sort of get back on track here because every day that you think it is, it's technically a day earlier because the schedule is pushed back on a week like this. Well, like we always like to say, it's really a football Tuesday, even though it's a real yeah. Wednesday. And, you know, I will tell you, I talked to Logan Ryan yesterday in an interview that's going to be on the the MSG First and Ten show this week, and I asked him specifically, do you guys look at this as kind of like a pseudo half a bye week where – the players had three and a half days off, and could you actually use it as a reset to try to clear your heads and move forward with the rest of the season? And he thought that they could. So we will see. Yeah, it is interesting when you have a Thursday game and then you have a Monday game following that. That does not happen very often. No, so the Giants are going to have some all. time here yeah, to, to regroup, to your point, to self-scout themselves, have the players and coaches look back at themselves in addition to looking ahead to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Well, and that's Lance, where think, I want to start here. Go think ahead. Think about this, though, before you, before you even go any further. Not only is it weird to have a Thursday and then a Monday afterwards, think about the fact that they had a Thursday in Philly, which is a bus ride, and yeah. then a Monday afterwards, which is home. I mean, the only way it could have been any easier or any more of a bye week for the Giants is if they had played the Jets in one of these games. Pretty much. No, you bring up a great point because I know it was a road trip, but it really wasn't it a really road wasn't. trip. It really wasn't. Because of how close they were in going to Philadelphia. I mean, they were pretty much back at the facility in no time following the game compared to a travel procedure involving a plane or a train and so forth. So that certainly did make things easy. But what's not easy is the task at hand coming up on Monday night, going up against a Tampa Bay Buccaneers team that is five and two, and I would argue really starting to click and really starting Paul to play its best football. And I don't think that should surprise anyone when you have a new quarterback and you didn't have a preseason, as great as Tom Brady is, sometimes you need a few games and they also have been banged up by injuries. But I've watched a number of these Bucks games, and I feel as if this team is getting stronger and stronger by the week. The defense has been very on point in terms of their opportunistic plays. They're number two in the NFL in terms of total sacks right behind the Steelers. So this is going to be a challenge with every facet of this Giants team to play as close to perfect football because this is not the team, Paul, that you have any chance of giving gifts to on either side of the ball. There is no question about it, Lance. When you go into this matchup and you start going through the units one by one, 
you obviously see that the Buccaneers have an advantage really everywhere on the field. I don't, I don't think we're breaking any news when we tell you that. They, they are clicking on all cylinders, especially over the past two weeks. Brady was razor sharp the other day. I don't know. Did you get a yeah. chance to watch that game? I did. I watched actually the entire game. I mean, could he have looked any better? Honestly. I, I don't I know that he yeah, I don't know that he could have put forth a better game against the Las Vegas Raiders the other day. He was as sharp as a razor blade. And that defense, specifically the back seven, it looks like they're playing on roller skates twelve against eleven. I mean, it is it is just really something to behold when they're clicking on all cylinders like they were this past weekend. So you know the Giants have a monumental task on Monday. Now, one of the things they, of course, have to do in addition to playing disciplined, as you just said, they can't afford to make any mistakes and give away any charity to a team that's going to be heavily favored. But the other thing the Giants have to do, how many times do I tell you this? play above the X's and the O's. There are going to be guys who have to step up and not just make the plays they're supposed to make, but make the plays they're not supposed to make. Make some superlative plays. That's the way that the Giants can actually be competitive in this game. Guys are going to have to do those wow plays that make you drop your jaw and say, well, look at that. Well, and that is interesting that you bring that up because of the fact that the one thing that has jumped out to me, because remember, this is a Buccaneers team, Paul, that the Giants played last year. It was Daniel Jones' debut, remember, in Week 3 in Tampa, and you know the Bucs jumped out to an early lead. Their offense is bringing back pretty much the same personnel. James the biggest Winston. difference is, there you go. <laughs> You're going from Jameis Winston to Tom Brady, and the reason why I want to focus on that is because, once again, you talked about playing above the X's and O's, making some of those game-changing plays. Well, last year, I would have said the chance of that happening is much higher than this year because I was going through the numbers, and interestingly, this is the Tom Brady effect that I thought would make the biggest difference for Tampa, regardless of whether or not his numbers were going to be astronomical. Through the first seven games, Paul, last season, the Bucks had 12 takeaways, but 17 giveaways. So they yeah. had a turnover differential of minus five. Okay, let's move the calendar forward exactly one year. First seven games this year, they have exactly the same amount of takeaways, 12, but they've got just seven giveaways. Their turnover differential is plus five. That's the Tom Brady effect. What Winston would do for you when you played against him, he'd take those extra chances. He'd help you change field position, which what happened in week three, if you remember, in terms of Ryan Connolly getting the interception. That's now not happening because of the job that Tom Brady does in protecting the football and also how fast he gets rid of the football. Here's another big difference, Paul. Winston was sacked 28 times in the first seven games last year. Brady, just eight. That's a huge disparity right there. Oh, there's no question. It just changes the entire complexion of that yeah. whole complementary football equation that uh, we always hear from uh, Joe Judge all the time. A couple of players who have really made a difference for Tampa on defense who did not necessarily have a role in that game last year against the Giants. We start with Devin White. Okay. I'm glad I mean, you started there because if you didn't, you would have had some issues with me. <laughs> you know, Devin White was, was not an issue. He was not active in that game last year when the Giants played down at Tampa Bay. And right now, over the last two games, he has become a one-man wrecking crew. He had three sacks the other day against the Raiders. Now I get it. The Raiders' offensive line, because of the whole COVID thing, was, was a real juggle uh, jigsaw puzzle. I understand that. 
But in each of the last two weeks, he's had double-digit tackles. He's had sacks. Uh, he he has just been an absolute monster the last couple of games. And, you know, you can't even compare him to Minter, who was their starting inside linebacker last year in that game against the Giants. These two guys are on different planets as far as football players. And quite honestly, Antoine Wingfield Jr., who has come in as a rookie and given them some really good snaps, has also been an upgrade in their secondary. So their defense is clearly better than what the Giants faced last year in Florida. No doubt about it. He was their second-round pick this year out of Minnesota. His father played for the Vikings for many years, was a pro bowler, so it's good family lineage lineage that's in the works. And you're right, he's made a significant impact. The other guy... While we're talking about the secondary, Paul, I know he left the game against the Raiders, was a bit banged up, so we'll have to wait to see the injury report. But Carlton Davis, who's in his third season, having a great year. Second round pick out of 2018, excellent season. He's got three interceptions, 11 passes defense. He, I would argue, has taken his game to new heights, so that to your point, whenever you would play the Bucs in previous seasons, I would argue they've got a really strong front. They'll get after the quarterback, but their liability is on the back end. Now, you can't really talk about the Bucs and saying they're as big of a liability in the secondary. That, to me, has been the most significant turnaround for the team. Well, you remember when Vernon Hargraves came out, there were a lot of people in his draft that were arguing he might be the best cover corner in that draft. Turned out he got to Tampa Bay, and he was getting beaten left and right. He was one of their bigger busts of the last several years, and he's no longer there. So just by getting rid of him, that's addition by subtraction in the secondary. Big Blue Kickoff Live presented by New York Lottery. Get out there and play. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Wednesday's edition as we are looking ahead to the Monday night matchup between the Bucks and the Giants. So those are some of the things that have jumped out to us about Tampa Bay. And we'll certainly unravel some of the other storylines as we move forward here. But right now, let's open up the phone lines at 201-939-4513. And we start with Travis, who is in Queens. Travis, welcome aboard. What do you have for us? Hey, fellas, what's up? Um, You're doing all right, Travis. What's make, on your mind? All right, I'm, I'm going to make two points. First point, uh, I think I, I was listening in yesterday, and Lance, you were saying that, um, that you know, your philosophy on, on giving up on the players and management should take some time, right? And I believe... Not to say it's wrong. I agree to an extent. My extent being is that Dave Gettleman, his tenure here, he's nine and twenty-six. When 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 he was uh, telling us his philosophy, it was the O line, right? So we all bought it to the point where if he would have drafted Quentin Nelson, we would have we would have been okay with that. Would have made sense because that's what he said. You know that that's what he wanted. To do that's his thing is is, is the trenches. All right, he didn't he didn't do that. He drafted Barkley, which I'm love and okay with. But his tenure here, like he needs to go. He's nine and twenty six. The O line is still a mess. He tried. Him trying is him striking out at the plate. You know, of course he tried to fix it. Of granted, you know, but the decisions he has made, I don't think is good. Because look at like look like look what's going on. We still have that problem with the O line. My second point is for left tackle, uh, Andrew Thomas and any tackle. Like what what is the because uh, I because I hear you guys say you know for a quarterback it's three years to really know what you have. I'm all in for Daniel Jones, 
Um, but left tackle Andrew Thomas, right? How many games, do, do, like, how many games would you need to know that you have a legit? Uh, well, it's know, certainly uh, not seven games, like Travis. If that's where you're getting at, if you want to jump to conclusions about Thomas and Matt Paird, who's played a little, you know, you talk about the track record of the general manager. They just drafted two guys with relatively high picks. So after seven games to say that we know exactly what's going to happen moving forward, I, I think that's a bit of a stretch here. I think you need a little no, bit no. more time, especially with not having a conventional offseason too. Let's not forget about that. Right, but but also with but but with Quentin Nelson, you like right? He was plug and play. Well, but that's, that's the a, coulda woulda shoulda game. But the Nelson argument no. is the coulda woulda shoulda game. They drafted Saquon, so we're we're trying no. to now play out a hypothetical. I don't know what would have happened no, no, to the Giants if they drafted Nelson. No, listen. So we're not playing a hypothetical because we. How is it not a hypothetical? What, because we know what Quentin Nelson is. I'm asking you what Quint, like with Quentin Nelson when once he uh, started his career with the Colts, right? And his seven games, like, was it, was it like, like, like a stamp? Like, oh yeah, we definitely have our left guard. Like, like, did you see that in his play? Well, he was a highly ranked offensive lineman coming out of college and was certainly a strong player, but, but Travis, but the, but the problem I have with the philosophy of if Nelson comes to the Giants, all of a sudden the offensive line is very different. You're also overlooking what the Colts also brought in in addition to Nelson and the structure they have. Anthony Costanzo at left tackle. You got Ryan Kelly at center. Braden Smith was another draft pick in 18. He was their second-round pick. There was a massive turnover in terms of the Colts' offensive line. I'm not taking away credit from Nelson, but I disagree that one player alone completely changes an entire offensive line. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying. I'm not saying. No, but but I'm talking about like, do like, do you see the traits in uh, uh, Andrew Thomas to say, you know, like, you know, he's our franchise left tackle. Like, well, Travis, I, I understand your question. We're, we're going to let you go only because your connection is coming in and out. So I'm not sure which end it is. But we will address that, Travis, and we certainly appreciate the phone call. So, Paul, the biggest question it seems is. How much of a sample size do you need before you could determine the outlook or what you have in an offensive lineman? And I would say seven games is certainly not the point. Oh, there's no question about that. And, and here's the funny part. Here he is, you know, uh, criticizing Gettleman's uh, selections for the offensive line, but he just grafted this year, just a few months ago, a first-rounder and a third-rounder to be bookend left tackles who – if if anything comes to reality with these guys, they're going to wind up being bookends, you know, for years to come. The Giants may have the best set of tackles that they've had uh, with this franchise for many years. I mean, I, it's it's hysterical. It's absolutely hysterical. I mean, he may have just set them up with a first rounder and third round offensive tackle for many years to come, so that this franchise quarterback can be successful over the next decade. I don't know. I, you remember Jumbo Elliott, I'm sure, right, sure, Lance? Yeah. Okay. Jumbo was a second round pick out of Michigan. His first year, I remember when he came into the league, he started a handful of games. Okay. He didn't get inserted into the Giants' starting lineup as their their regular everyday left tackle until his second season in the league. And when he got in, 
he made his share of rookie mistakes, even though he was a second-year player because he only had limited experience in his first year. He did make a bunch of mistakes. Parcells used to just absolutely get all over him. I mean, oh, my goodness, at practice, jumbo, jumbo this, jumbo that. He was all over him. And Jumbo Elliott turned out to be one of the best left tackles this New York Giants franchise has ever had. The point is, the guy needed to grow into the spot. You don't just add water and instantly click your fingers and he's a bona fide, terrific starter. No, he took a little time. And I don't think anybody would ever suggest that Jumbo Elliott wasn't an asset to this team. Well, that's why I think in the period of time that we live in right now, which is instantaneous gratification. That's it. One click. Everybody, one click. The internet. One click and we got what we want. It's all fixed. Correct. You want rookies to step on the field and all of a sudden play like pro bowlers. It just, it doesn't happen. I'm not saying that it never happens, but to all of a sudden jump to conclusion and say that the Giants offensive line is not fixed or there's not an attempt to when we've only seen Matt Paird and we haven't even seen Matt Paird really for full seven games because he hasn't been a starter. We've seen Andrew Thomas. You really need to see what develops with respect to these players before we jump to conclusions that it worked or it didn't work. That's number one, which I think is the biggest point of emphasis. And, you know, there's other guys such as Tyron Smith and Jason Garrett even brought up this point. Paul, I don't know if you remember, he spoke to the media and he was asked about Andrew Thomas about a week or two ago and he said when Tyron Smith was drafted and Tyron Smith was a high pick and is a pro bowl left tackle who's hurt right now they put him up against DeMarcus Ware in practice during his rookie year and he just get beat constantly but little by little he improved and things drastically improved and then he automatically was moved over to left tackle because he started over on the right side. Then they swapped him with Doug Free. So is that the path that Andrew Thomas is on? Perhaps. I don't know, but I'm certainly not going to jump to conclusions after seven games and say that the Giants absolutely have no hope with who they spent a high first-round pick on. And you know, the other thing that I kind of wonder how these people come up with these questions and these criticisms, Lance, think about three of the guys who were supposed to be on this line. They traded for Zeitler, who at the time, everybody, no matter where you went to, people said, oh, he's one of the top 10 guards in the NFL. Everybody said that. He never made a Pro Bowl, but everybody was like, oh, he's just below Pro Bowl caliber. This guy is one of the best guards in the National Football League. So don't you think it took something to get him? They had to trade Beckham in the deal to get him. Okay, so obviously they made an attempt to get a guy who was as proven as proven can be. All right. They went and they signed Solder for a great deal of money, who had been on multiple Super Bowl teams with the New England Patriots. And obviously that didn't necessarily work out in part because Solder had to suffer through a ton of injuries and and that hampered his production. But that was an obvious attempt to get better. God knows they paid him enough money to get better. And then they used a second round pick on Will Hernandez. Do you think second round picks are cheap? You think they're worthless? No, no, second-round picks are important. So they invested a second-round pick in him. So where is this this narrative that Gettleman hasn't tried enough or hasn't done enough to try to rebuild this line? I don't get where that comes from. Well, the other thing that's interesting that you brought up is the fact that if Solder didn't opt out, 
how that would have possibly changed the dynamics and sure. what Andrew Thomas dealt with in the early stages of his career because I'm not saying that Cam Fleming would have automatically started on the right. I think he would have been a possibility, possibility for Andrew Thomas on the right, which goes back to my parallel with Tyron Smith, how he started on the right and then gradually moved his way to the left side. We don't know, and, and that certainly impacts how players perform in the early stages of their career. There's no doubt about that, but you know that's what makes this season unique. Andrew Thomas knows that he has to play better, and we talked about it on yesterday's program in terms of some of the challenges. He's even admitted it in terms of the consistency of technique and so forth, and they're working on it, but after seven games, way too early to start making declarations about you know what his future is. Let's head Lance, back to the Lance, lines. there's one other yeah. point that's important to mention, and it, it takes guts, it takes, it takes uh, fortitude, it takes understanding, it takes knowledge, it takes boldness. When you make a mistake to move on well what happened okay what happened Bobby Hart didn't work out here Gettleman saw this wasn't going to be a good thing when he got in here he got rid of him Eric Flowers they tried to make it work okay it's not working out you get rid of him Omame you sign Omame to free agent money you know what it doesn't work out you get rid of him you move on it it, it's you you want to be critical be critical of a guy who makes moves sees that they don't work out, and then doesn't have the boldness to then try to fix it again. And and to me, it's, there is no criticism of Gettleman. He did exactly what he had to do with this offensive line. The results haven't necessarily been as good as you would like them to be at this moment. I understand that. But don't tell me that in his three seasons here, he has not tried to fix things. That, to me, is, is laughable. Let's head back to the lines. Ian is in Florida. He joins us here on Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Ian? Hey, guys. Um, you know, normally I'm with you with the whole instant gratification thing, uh, but I don't think that's about – this is what this is about. This has been eight years of god-awful football that we've had to endure to watch. Um, I, I, I watch – I listen to your show all the time. I watch all the interviews, and there's like this – optimism that comes out that we're improving that we're improving that it's just about cleaning up mistakes and penalties i think it all boils down to we're just we're just not we're not getting better we're not we're not sorry um we're not we're not talented you know when i i don't know if that's a gm thing or a scouting thing or what but you know gettleman has said in the past when you pick players up that high in the top five top ten you know you got to envision them being in a gold jacket Right now, that's not happening. And it is a little strange that you, but to the first caller's point, that we're drafting skill position guys before solidifying those lines. And I, and I know that he's tried. I understand that what you guys are saying. I understand that. But overall, it's been a big disappointment. We're more excited to see Matt Terrick play than Andrew Thomas right now. And that's just really bad for a pick at number four. And you And in the past, you guys said, well, you know, Tristan Wirfs and Jedrick Wills are getting a lot of commendation from even their opposing uh, players. And you're saying, well, they went into better situations. Well, if they were a weaker link, then other teams would expose that on that line. Because it's always said there's got to be that continuity. All five got to be one. There's got to be that. So either that's baloney. But so what what I'm saying is, like, we had the pick of the litter for offensive tackle, and I'm not I'm not giving up on him by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying it is just a little disappointing that 
we're not getting dogs. We're not getting we're not getting just sure fire guys early in these rounds. I feel like I I just feel like you know that we're, we're drafting guys that are developmental. If you really think about it, the narrative is that we we're improving, we're improving, but we're not seeing that improvement. So what did we do here? Are we drafting right. these guys and? You, you could give yourself some better perspective if you take a look at each of these offensive tackles who were taken in the first round. And what I'd like you to do is make a chart and look at each one of those guys, the, a pass rusher who they've had to go against in each of the first seven weeks of the season. And then after you do that chart, you tell me the level of competition that Andrew Thomas has gone up against compared to the other guys who have supposedly gotten these better grades. Again, you know how I feel about analytics and that kind of stuff. I will grant you that he has been inconsistent, that he has made rookie mistakes, and that his level of development at this particular stage has been slower than the other guys. There's no questioning that. The tape doesn't lie. That's obvious. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. It's, it's clear. But also look at the level of competition. That would be akin okay, to going up against Garrett Cole all right, with a toothpick in baseball compared to going up against the number five starter on the Texas Rangers. It's a big difference. He has gone up against the best and the best practically week in and week out and had a very, very difficult time compared to look at the other rookie left tackles who have come into this league and look at the guys they've had to go up against. After you make that chart, if you want to come back and call us, you tell me what you find, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised that part of the reason Thomas has had trouble is because he's gone up against some really, really top-notch competition, and the other guys haven't had to face those kinds of dangerous weapons. Well, the other thing is also, by the way, Makai Becton has been injured, and he already missed two full games, really three, because one of the games he dressed, he was then forced in, and he was beat up. So Correct. he hasn't even played a full slate of games with the Jets. Which means Worst. fewer snaps to be exposed. Of course, exactly. So that's important to bring up. Worfs, I think, has played very nicely, though I will say the Bears game against the Bucks, and Worfs also is playing on the right side, too. But when you take into consideration... Tristan Wirfs and him going up against Robert Quinn and Khalil Mack, that entire offensive line they feasted on in that game. That was probably Brady's roughest game and the Bucks offensive line and the Giants went up against that offensive line and that was difficult too. So, you know, all of that stuff is important to take into consideration, Ian, when you're making the comparison and, game. Yeah, no, and, and I'm using Andrew Thomas as an example and I'm not just, you know, just focusing on him because I do believe a lot of our pressure is coming up the middle. So I'm not excluding Will Hernandez that I feel like has been a disappointment. I understand Gates, this is his first year at center, and Zeitler's been disappointing to me. So we can't even get like, you know, when Barkley was healthy, <clears throat> excuse me, he, he, he was getting tackled in the backfield before he even got the ball. So there, it, it's, across the, it's across the line. But let's now flip over to the defensive line. Would you not agree that that's a, that is our strongest part of our defense? Yes. Yeah, I think they're a rotational group of guys. Yeah. It's a good yeah. unit. So at that that our defensive line is the strongest, right? And it's just so disappointing. What I'll tell you what, it was devastating to lose to the Cowboys and the Eagles. Forget the other games. Sure. Because those games we 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 should have won. We had the leads in. And it's so disappointing to see, for instance, what other teams do to those teams and expose the fact that their offensive lines were decimated. And our strongest part of our team 
didn't just absolutely wreck that game. Yeah, they had their moments, don't get me wrong, but my God, that they should have made the linebackers look amazing and the secondary look amazing just because of the O-lines that they were going against. And it's yeah, just so but, sad to see. Ian, you know but, what, though? And I get it, and I get it, but we've been telling you since the draft the Giants don't have a Batman pass rusher. And where have the Giants right. failed? They failed in the two-minute offense, and they failed in the two-minute defense. And you know why that is? That's because they've been going up against teams that have that Batman pass rusher. And when the Giants are in a two-minute offense and they're trying to come back, Jones is running for his life because guys are pinning their ears back, they're coming hot and heavy for him, and the offensive line hasn't been able to hold up. On the other side of the ball, other teams are doing – I can't believe none of the newspaper guys have figured this out yet. But it's the, it's the number one problem with the Giants' two-minute defense. They don't have a Batman pass rusher who can scare the bejesus out of the other team. That is the reason why in the two-minute defense they haven't been able to stop anybody. It's that simple. This is not hard. And Ian, we'll let you go on no, that I, note. I, Appreciate the uh, phone call because we, we want to move on here before we uh, get to uh, Patty Trainer a little bit later on here on the program. And, yeah, that's why you've seen multiple touchdowns right before the end of the first half and then specifically at the end of the game. Also, you know, the personnel around the opposing quarterbacks, too, the separation that they get in terms of the Cowboys receiving court, too. You know, that's important in terms of who they're attacking in the secondary. If you don't hit the quarterback, they're going to have time to survey the field and throw down the field like we saw with Andy Dalton and Michael no Gallup. Doubt. No All doubt, those Lance. things go hand in hand. Think about it. You're in your two-minute defense, right? You know the other team is going to fling the ball down the field. You know they're going to pass it, right? What there are there are two ways, two ways that you can really screw them up and make that one big stop. Everybody says, "Oh, you got to have a stop. You got to have a stop." Well, you know they're throwing it, which means either one of two things: either you hurry the quarterback and force him into making a bad throw that's going to be intercepted, or he has to throw it away, or you get, you get the sack, which totally short-circuits the drive. And if you don't get the sack because you're just about to get the sack, the offensive line commits a holding penalty, and they wind up screwing themselves over because they got to go backwards anyway. Well, how do you get those two things? You get them with a Batman pass rusher, which the Giants don't have. We've told you that forever. And it's a shame because they're in the top ten in the NFL in sacks, but in the two-minute drill, because they don't have that one Batman – they can't get it when they need it the most. It's really not hard. That closer type of player. Giants fans get a New York Giants checking account from Investors Bank with a Giants-branded debit card, security features, and discounts at the Giants online shop. You can earn up to $250 when you open an account at InvestorsBank.com slash Giants member FDIC. Let's try to squeeze in one more caller before we get to our guest. Brian's in Atlanta. Brian, welcome aboard. What do you have for us? Hey, guys, how are you? Thanks for taking Hi, doing well, Brian. What's on your mind? Um, so just first off, I think it's really important to point out that, you know, we're all on the same page here. We're all on the same team, and we all want the team to succeed. So that's first off. And, and I say that because, Paul, honestly, I'm scratching my head here listening to you today. i got to be candid. So just let me wrap up a few observations, and then I'll, I'll stop. So you talked about Dave Gettleman's attempts to improve the line, right? No right. question. He's tried. He's tried, right? You would acknowledge that trying and succeeding are two very different things. Sure. Right? It's, his job to, it's his job to try. And, and, you know, any other explanation comes across as almost excusing failure. And, and you know, and then we're being asked 
you know, to create charts and analyze who, you know, one guy is faced versus who another guy is faced. I mean, really? That's all part of it. Football's matchups. Football's matchups. Paul, 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 let me finish, and then you can, you know, this is your your show. This is your show. I'll exit stage left, and you can No, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. The The callers are just addressing results, right? It's all about results, right? Regardless of how those results may have occurred, injuries, bad signings, poor drafts, who plays whom, right? What happened? Right. A couple of observations now. So Will Hernandez has, he's allowed, according to one of the writers uh, today, Hernandez is allowed, let me see here, 21 pressures, and he ranks number 45 among guards in run blocking. That's PFF. Now, I know, you know, on this call, we're not all huge fans. Of, of PFF in the data, I get that. But if you add Hernandez to Fleming, to Thomas, and, you know, possibly Gates, right, who right now is kind of, you know, TBD, as holes on the line, you know, you have to really question Dave Gettleman's future, right? That's one of, you know, a, a few arrows, if you will, in the fan quiver. Here's another thing. Like, shouldn't, shouldn't success on the Bradbury and Martinez signings be viewed somewhat differently given the fact that the Giants' best players this season are, you know, with few exceptions, free agents, right? It's kind of another indictment, in my opinion, on draft failures. No one, no one here cares that Gettleman drafted Bradbury in Carolina, and really no one cares what a free agent may have done in another uniform, Right. And so why is it acceptable to deem certain free agent signings a success after seven games in a Giants uniform? Like I've heard on this, on this show and others that, hey, these, these signings are a success. And, you know, they might be. They might turn out to be. But, but why is it acceptable to say that, to make that observation, but unacceptable to deem certain rookies a bust after the same number of games? Well, because that's Bradbury's simple. been in the league a lot longer. Right. I mean, come on. Right. That's I mean, it. Very simple. Rookies take time. You got to cook them. You got to cook them. You don't pay. You don't pay a free agent though for what he's done before he's thrown your uniform on. Yeah, so but I he's already got a proven. He's already got a proven track record. So by the time he gets to your team, he's hitting the ground running, and he's got to produce immediately at what is already on the back of his football card. So you're so you're he's totally. Gotta, you, he's he's got to he's got to so come he, up right away. Your free agent has so got to produce, produce right okay, away. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, so he's got to produce immediately given COVID, given a new coaching staff. So your expectation is that a free agent off the street or we sign from another team has to produce. Well, we depending want, on his resume, time. Brian. I mean, Bradbury's a guy that's been in the league for a number of years and has performed at a high level. Blake Martinez was also previously with Patrick Graham to a Correct. certain degree. So was They've Fackrell. got a good feel for uh, one another. I mean, you, you have to provide context. If they bring in right, Joe me, Schmo so off the amend, street, uh, I don't right. think it's the same standard. Right, so let me, and let by me the way, right. guys like Lawrence and Slayton seem to have done pretty well. And, you know, they were draft picks last season. So, no I, you know, I'm not sure no, where you're no. coming from. I, I, well, I said with few exceptions. There are exceptions, right? With the, okay. with, the, like, with the amount of bullets in the chamber, right? We're going to hit on some of them. Yeah, definitely Slayton was – that was great. That's a great sign. Are, are you so prepared to bet the mortgage to your house right now that Pert and Thomas will not work out? Are you so sure that you know both of these no. tackles won't be here for 10 years? Definitely, definitely not. How could I be? Of course. Okay, but so then, so then you yeah. that arrow just got just got thrown out of your your okay. chamber. All right. Okay. So then let's let so let's let's take another perspective on your on your. Position Do you know that ball. Shane Lemieux won't be here for a number of years once he finally cracks the lineup and there's so room Thomas, for him? 
let's say Thomas and Pert both turn out to be uh, above average players, or one of them turns out to be a pro bowl. Let's say that, right? What is the likelihood? But by the time that occurs, what is the likelihood that either Radbury, Martinez, or Barkley are on the roster and performing at a high level at the same time? I don't think it's out of the right. question that that, that so Thomas bet, and Pert will be your starting tackles your next year, right? You don't you don't think that you don't think that that's possible that Pert and Thomas could be starting next year on a team that has all of those veterans that you just mentioned? You don't believe that? I think I think it's possible that they could both be starting this year. But I okay, but I so that. so then you just answered your own question. I don't think no, either one of those guys have to be Pro Bowl. I mean, there there have been guys Jumbo Elliott. All right, Jumbo no, Elliott. No you know, was a terrific tackle on a Super Bowl team, but he was not a perennial Pro Bowler. He doesn't have to go to the Pro Bowl okay. to be a Super Bowl-quality player. Well, I respect the fact that you've been around a long time. I do. Last week I heard you on this show tell one of your co-hosts, I think it might have been Jeff Beagle, how circumspect you are when you use words, right? Like you listen to every – you're very careful about the words you use. Nomenclature right? and semantics are very important. Okay. Then why, then why aren't you listening to the words that your callers use? I said above average. Pert and Thomas may be starters this year. Will they be above average performers? And I said as rookies, no. As, rook, as rookies, uh, probably not. Okay. Few rookies are. Okay. So then let's, let's be, I just want to be respectful of the callers. And let's just consider the fact that the, these callers here have outstanding points. And I don't want to be throwing out bouquets for trying. No, no. When, when callers bring good points, we're that, very right. happy to talk to them. I, my, my issue is very simple. Everybody can have opinions, and everybody can like or not like a player, a scheme, or whatever the case may be. That's obviously fine. There's nothing wrong with that, and I'm very glad to field those calls. My problem will be if somebody comes with an opinion that is based on an erroneous item. If they are inaccurate with their fact, then the opinion that's based on that has no foundation and crumbles into the mud. And that's when they have to be corrected. It's just Brian, that's the larger simple. point the larger point here is that rookies and veterans, you can't look at the same. That's number one. And number two, the larger point is after seven games, it's completely unfair to jump to conclusions about how good or bad a player is going to be who didn't have a typical offseason. That's all. I mean, that's at yeah. least where I'm coming yeah. from. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think that's when crazy. No, 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 Lance, Lance, I, I agree. Both of you guys, I agree with everything. I totally agree with the, the summarization, Lance, that you just provided. What, what I, what I, the question I posed, or I guess the observation I put forward was, why is it acceptable that in seven games, Blake Martinez pulls on our jersey? Yeah, we're all, awesome, great signing. That's acceptable. And I'm not necessarily suggesting it isn't. But why is it unacceptable to, to criticize or, or essentially blast the performance of a rookie when he's played the same number of games. That's that's all. I'm not well, saying there's nothing wrong with being critical because the rookies are held yeah. to different standards. It's it, just it's that just simple. It's just the fact that he doesn't have the same seasoning. Andrew Thomas doesn't have nearly the same amount of seasoning that Bradbury and Martinez have had. That's Look, the main difference. Look, man, it takes ten yeah. to twelve minutes to cook a pot of pasta. The rookies, the right. rookies are only. You've just put salt in the water. They're, they're not there yet. They're not even close to being ready. I mean, it's baptism by fire right now for oh, Andrew It's a different Thomas. deal. Martinez yeah. so, is ready know, for the not, sauce. Right. So, so, Paul, I, I, I've taken up plenty of time, guys. I'm going to drop just one more point. If, Real quick. if they're not ready, 
and I and I agree, if they're not ready per Thomas Gates with a position change, etc. Then what does it say about our roster if we have nobody else to play those spots? How are they supposed yeah, to get ready if you don't I, grow I them? The, the, the Giants I are in a. Time, all right, be good. The, the key here, Lance, and I appreciate the caller's frustration, and it sounds like he, you know, he's got a decent head on his shoulders and he's trying to understand some of the logic here. It comes down to this. When you're in a retooling phase like the Giants are, the only way to get those guys ready is to play them. Because in the NFL, if you're simply going to always have ready-made guys, you won't have salary cap room to go buy them. The only way to get ready-made guys is to buy them. It's basically a balancing act. When you don't take care of business in the draft, you then have to put stress on your cap. But you want to have both of them be complementary to one another. And that's what the Giants have been working on. And that's what Gettleman, in fairness, has been working on since he cleared out cap space when they went on a spending spree in 2016. That's what he inherited first. So now he's trying to rebuild the shed through the draft. And once again, it just doesn't happen with a snap-the-finger type of mentality. If there was anything to be said here, it's that the team was in worse shape than maybe Gettleman may have thought when he first inherited the job, and he had to do a lot more turpentine on the walls than maybe he originally thought as well. And that has somewhat slowed the development of what his phased plan was going to be. It's that really that simple. It's not that hard. We'll get more into the Giants of now, but right now we want to take a more historical approach. And earlier we had an opportunity to chat with Patty Trainer, who's the senior editor and writer for GiantsCountry.com and SI.com Sports Channel. She has a new book out. Take a listen. We are now joined by Patricia Trainer, who is the senior editor and writer for GiantsCountry.com and SI.com Sports Channel. She has a new book out entitled The Big 50, New York Giants, The Men and Moments That Made the New York Giants. Patty, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino here on Giants.com's Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Doing well, Lance. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you, too. Well, our pleasure. And before we get into the details of the book, Patty, I want to start off in terms of a general basis. Whenever you discuss the history of the Giants franchise, there's so many directions that I'm sure you were thinking of that you could have gone to. So what type of an undertaking was this, and how did you develop this structure and set up for the book? Well, Lance, it was a huge undertaking. You know, you're talking nearly 100 years of Giants history, and everybody is kind of intertwined a little bit, you know? So it's like, you know, I would write a chapter, and I'd say, oh, wait a minute, this is now spinning off into another chapter. So I would have to cut stuff off and and separate it. But at the end of the day, what I just did was I sat down with a pad and a pen, and I wrote down what I thought would be 50 chapters that might, you know, represent the history of the team, including uh, games, including moments, including uh, the men, obviously. Um, and, and I also looked for some hidden stuff, stuff that maybe isn't as well known, like, for example, the charity game uh, against Notre Dame, going back to when the NFL was still fairly new. And I tweaked the list, obviously. You know, I sought some, some consultation from, from historians like Vinny Detrani. I even reached out to Paul, who's been covering the team, as you know, forever. And uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, we came up with, um, or I came up with the 50 chapters and uh, tried to tell as compelling and as entertaining a story as I possibly could. 
Well, when you talk about entertaining stories, Patty, again, with such a long history, the Giants have so many of them. Was there one in particular that kind of was the most fun for you, or maybe there were two or three that turned out to be a lot more enjoyable than you thought they were going to be? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got to go with with my my top favorite, which was the 2007 Super Bowl. I mean, that that whole playoff run, Paul, was just, I don't have to tell you, you were there. It was just amazing. It was magical. I mean, that was a team that really nobody expected a whole lot of, and even right down to the Super Bowl. So to get them to that point and to just relive those moments, and I mean, I remember it as though it were yesterday, and it remains probably my most favorite moment to cover since I've been on the beat, and I've been on the beat now for over 20 years. So that would be my top favorite. I think another one that was was a, a favorite of mine was writing about the Giants' offensive line. Um, I call them Eli's guys. That was the line of uh, Seibert, uh, O'Hara, Deal, McKenzie, and Snee. I mean, that, that group was just, you know, they were so underrated. And it's funny because you go back to the 80s, you have, of course, you know, the lunch pail guys, the, the Parcells guys of, the, the you know, that 86 championship team. And this this group was just you know, I thought they were just as good, um, just as underrated, and just as entertaining as that group was. And it was just a pleasure to get to know those guys and to go back and write about them and, and talk about their different personalities, how different they were, but how well they meshed together on the field. And that group wound up playing 38 straight games at one point. People forget about that from 2006 to 2009. And for you to focus a chapter on them just goes to show you how important the play in the trenches was, which I'm sure most Giants fans could certainly attest to. When you started to do this research, Patty, was there something that you learned? I mean, you've been clearly covering the team for decades, but was there something that you had an opportunity to branch out to and that you really delved into that you really hadn't realized prior during the course of your time covering the team? Uh, Probably a lot of the stuff I learned, Lance, was from before I started covering the team, even stuff that happened before I was born. But I would have to say, in, in terms of modern era, um, the Super Bowl 30 team, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the 25, Super Bowl 25, uh, which is celebrating their, their 30th anniversary. One thing I never really knew or understood is why that team decided, the defense I'm talking about now, why they decided to not focus on the run and focus instead on the pass. And as, as I researched that chapter, which I wrote under Bill Belichick, because it just, it just showed you how brilliant of mine, Bill Belichick was uh, when he was here as a defensive coordinator. It just, you know, him thinking outside the box and saying, oh, wow, you know, this is why he decided to do this. And, and here's how he put it together. That that was just really, you know, I, I learned something about how you can sometimes think outside the box of the conventional wisdom, which, as you know, most defensive coordinators will say, oh, you stop the run and then, then you, you, you know, you limit the pass. But Belichick was just so far ahead of his time and that was a big you know learning point for me patty you know and speaking of that super bowl and like you said it's the 30 year anniversary of and we've been doing a whole uh remembering and honoring campaign on giants.com about that super bowl i'm glad that you decided to single out in your book what mark collins's contribution was because so many people don't think about him because let's face it he was not a pro bowl player but my goodness was he important to that championship 
He sure was. And, you know, I, I basically asked him, you know, because I looked back over the stats and I said, hmm, Jerry Rice, he held Jerry Rice in the, in, in the championship game to nothing. He held down Andre Reid. And I said, I asked him, I said, Mark, what did you do that, that nobody else could do? And he said, simple. I just, I just beat him up. I hit them. You know, that's what a defensive back is supposed to do. And he was kind of amazed that nobody really exercised that, that approach towards these great receivers. And, you know, he did that. And, Paul, you know the story. He, he held those guys to virtually nothing. And he was such an underrated but important factor in those games, as you mentioned. We're talking with Patty Trainer, who is the senior editor and writer for GiantsCountry.com and SI.com Sports Channel. She's got a new book out entitled The Big 15 New York Giants, The Men and Moments That Made the New York Giants. And, Patty, you brought up Bill Belichick, and I found it also interesting. Not only did you focus on a chapter dedicated to him, you also have a chapter dedicated to the contributions of guys like Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry. And, you know, people may forget the Giants have helped blossom the careers of many of the greatest head coaches, forgetting Giants history and NFL history. Why was that important to focus on those three in particular who then went on to obviously bigger and better things even outside of the Giants organization? Well, mainly because they helped build the Giants. I mean, you talk about Lombardi and Landry. I mean, those teams were powerhouses when those guys were there. I remember seeing something in my research where the head coach, Jim Lee Howe, would actually kind of sit back and, you know, basically Lombardi and Landry were running the show, if you will. They were the ones, you know, Hal was kind of like a, a CEO-style head coach, and those two assistants were, were basically running the show, and they were innovative, and they just really, you know, made their mark on on the NFL. You look at what Landry developed, you know, the things that, that uh, Lombardi developed, how, how they changed the course of some of the players that they had, you know, especially, you know, with Frank Gifford, who I think at the time was was playing two ways, and Lombardi decided to kind of make him a one-way player. I mean, these guys just they're 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 forward thinking, and their ability to step outside the conventions that we know the game to be was just absolutely fascinating. And that's why you know, to me, even though they went on to be head coaches of other teams and have the success you know that they're known for, um, they their their early days with the Giants were just tremendous. You know, Patty, one of the things that I really appreciated as we talked about this thing when you were putting it together, how you didn't just want to stick to just the X's and the O's of football. You wanted to talk about the personalities. You wanted to talk about the the franchise's tradition and the history and the perspective and how they fit into the culture, which is why I thought it was so cool that you decided to put in a chapter about how the Giants' uh, storyline related to September 11. And, and then you even had an, a sidebar about the veterans that they had in, in the world wars of the past. This, this was an important part of, of also what made the Giants what they were at those particular times in history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, September 11th was, was a very tragic moment for all of us. You know, and and it was it was devastating, and and you know to capture that, you know the emotions after that, what the Giants were doing. I mean, I, I remember that day, you know, very well. I remember what I was doing. I remember, you know, what had happened the night before. I think the Giants were had had lost to the Denver Broncos on uh, Monday Night Football, and I just remember sitting. You know, I was getting ready to write that next morning, and and when the news came, I just. 
I don't think I've ever been devastated. And, you know, I've had some devastation, obviously, since that personal devastation. But that event just absolutely shook me to my core and just the impact and how the team, more importantly, uh, came together to, to lift up the spirits of the community of those who, you know, lost loved ones, of those who needed uh, need. You know, one of the things that gets overlooked, I think, in, in pro football or pro sports in general is the contributions players and coaches and team in general make to their communities. And I thought that was very important to include. Well, and Patty, speaking of dealing with adversity or overcoming adversity and how that defines an organization, I also found it interesting that you didn't shy away from telling the Giants history by also including some of the down moments which really helped define the direction of this franchise, such as you have a chapter dedicated to the fumble, which was a huge turning point, and also the relationships between the Maras and the Tishes and the arrival of George Young. Why is it that you have to tell those stories in order to give a big-picture perspective of how far this organization has come? Well, Liz, sometimes, you know, you need to hit rock bottom before change happens. And in the case of the fumble, I don't think it got any lower than, than that, that disaster. And I remember that one very well. I was a young girl at the time. I remember my father coming home from that game, and he was absolutely flabbergasted at what he saw. And he had never done this before, but he sat down and he wrote a letter to Wellington Mara at the time. And, I, and, and that was unusual for him because, A, he never wrote to anybody in the Giants, and, B, when it came to writing letters, he always had me do it. <laughs> which was kind of funny. Um, but uh, he wrote a letter, and he just absolutely, he was so infuriated by what he had seen that he vowed never to go to another Giants game again unless uh, something changed. And, of course, we all know what happened. The Giants cleaned things out. George Young came the following year. Then Phil Sims came in the draft. And it took a while for things to turn around. But by 1981, the Giants were, you know, they were finally back in the playoffs and, you know, they had started to turn things around and it took a while, you know, rebuilding never takes one year or two years. It can take multiple years, but it was a turning point in the franchise's history. As painful as it was to relive it, it was necessary to include it because without that, you don't have the George Young chapter. You don't have uh, the Lawrence Taylor chapter or the Phil Simms chapter and so forth. Final one for me, Patty. Which chapter was the most difficult one to write, either because there was so much stuff that you wanted to fit in and still made sure that you got a thumbnail sketch that represented the person or the event properly, or maybe because just in talking to the people, it was just difficult to really get them to say what they needed to say to give you the proper information? I think the chapter on Lawrence Taylor was probably the most difficult, but not because, you know, there's not a lot out there on him, but because he's done so many things. I mean, you could write a book on him alone. <laughs> and, <laughs> and to, you know, off the field and on the field, obviously. And, you know, the objective of each chapter was to keep it to about 1,500 words. Now, in some cases, I went a little short on some of the chapters. Most cases, I went a little bit over and just, picking out the moments of Lawrence Taylor's career and the impact he had, not just on the Giants franchise, but on the NFL, that was really, really challenging. I must have redid that chapter, I want to say, at least three times before I got it to where I, I like it. And I still don't know if I necessarily like it now, but it, it, it's good. It works. 
Patty, I'd say so, Patty. You did a great job. Absolutely. Thank you. Before we let you go, Patty, and once again, I'm always interested in terms of the process for an author and the structure of the book in addition to the content. I noticed former GM Ernie Accorsi had the opportunity to write the forward. I'm curious, Patty, how did that come about, and why was it also so great to have somebody who was well embedded into the organization to put their stamp on this book as well? Well, Lance, back when Ernie was the general manager of the team, every president's weekend, I used to arrange for an interview, a sit-down interview with him. And he used to be very generous with his time. He would give me about an hour or so of his time. And we'd sit and we'd talk. And, you know, I would do this this big interview with him. And, you know, sometimes after the interview finished early, we would sit and just kind of, you know, talk like this off the record and stuff like that. So he was always very good to me. And, you know, you look at what he did, you know, when he took over for George Young. I mean, George Young, that, those are big shoes to fill. I mean, I think we can all agree that, that George's impact on the organization is, is tremendous. So for Ernie to come in, and, and especially considering how he got his start. Remember, Ernie at one point was in PR. He was a, I think he was a sports journalist at one point. So for him to rise through the rankings, I just thought – you know, he would be the perfect guy to write the forward, and I was absolutely thrilled that he agreed to do so. And P.S., when I did the chapter on him, he still gave me over an hour of his time to sit and talk about, you know, great stories and memories, and there was just so much in there. I hated to leave some of that stuff on the cutting room floor. I might bring some of that back in an article for, for you know, Giants Country, um, but just so much great stuff, and, and I really appreciate Ernie contributing the way he did. It never hurts to have more than enough substance within a book to have to trim as opposed to have to search. And when it comes to the Giants organization, they certainly don't lack the content in that department. She is Patty Trena, who is the senior editor and writer for GiantsCountry.com and SI.com Sports Channel. She has a new book out entitled The Big 50, New York Giants, The Men and Moments That Made the New York Giants. So definitely check it out online and purchase it as it's a great read about the rich history of the Giants organization. Patty, can't thank you enough. Greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Look forward to talking to you down the road. Thanks again. Thanks, Patty. Thank you, guys. So thanks again to Patty Trainer for joining us discussing her new book. A reminder, you're listening to Big Blue Kickoff Live, presented by New York Lottery. Get out there and play. Lance Metal Paul Dottino with you here. A reminder also that the New York Giants at Quest Diagnostics want our fans to come back stronger than ever. Now you can order your own lab test through Quest Direct to get the health answers you need most. Let's finish up the show with a few more callers at 201-939-4513, hashtag Giants Chat. We check in with Dexter in Albany. Dexter, welcome to the program. What do you have for us? Hey, how you guys doing? Hey, Lance and P-Dot. How's everything? Hello. We're how are very you? Well. We're good. I know we were talking a week ago about the act, um, getting Corey Coleman back. I see practice squad. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, they added some other familiar faces, too. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I I will tell you again, I don't remember seeing his name anywhere as getting a workout or a tryout around the league. And then suddenly his name surfaced at the end of last week. And now here he is on the Giants practice squad. The the team did officially announce that yesterday. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly what they've got in terms of their plans for him. But, uh, hey, you know what? If he, if he can run and they're satisfied that he can meet what they need, more power to them for bringing him back. Awesome, awesome. Also, I noticed there's only three players left 
from the Reese regime on the um, squad, right? That's Sterling Shepard, Dalvin Thomason, and Evan Ingram, right? Correct? Ingram, I believe Thompson, so. That Shepard. sounds to be about accurate. Yeah. Now, you know how in the past we always lose out on good DTs. I would hate to see Dalvin Thomason walk because that guy is playing so phenomenal this year. And in the previous years, when we lost a DT because they didn't sign, they turned out to be real great players on other teams. Oh, Wayne teams. Goldman. Wayne Goldman. I knew there was a fourth guy. And I'm Gallman, thinking to myself, right. Wayne Goldman. There's four guys. Well, Goldman and Thomason, we have to keep them. We definitely cannot let them go. I, I think they are very productive, especially Thomason. As a captain this year, he has produced to the level where I think he's going to be extremely better than down the road. So I'm hoping that we do not do like we lost Lendl Joseph and so forth, the other DTs that we used to have, we didn't resign. I'm just hoping that we don't go through that crossroad again. What do you guys you, think about that? You know, I think what's going to happen as a result of the COVID situation and how the salary cap is going to get scrunched next season is going to force a lot of teams to lose a lot of good guys. So right now I wouldn't even hazard a guess as to what's going to happen with Tomlinson. You just don't know what the market's going to be, not necessarily how much you can pay him, but how much will the offers be from other teams who are also going to be in a salary cap crunch. The available money is going to be a lot less. The other thing to keep in mind also is Leonard Williams is also going to be a free agent at a similar position. So, you know, where do they decide to go with that? What do they think of Dexter Lawrence? Can they draft somebody? All of those factors play a role in terms of whether or not you bring back a guy. It's not because he's not a good player. It's a matter of, to Paul's point, the economics of football is going to look very different next offseason because of the fact that it's going to go down and teams are going to have to sacrifice players who are not even free agents as a result of restructuring contracts. Cap casualties are yeah. going to really light up that list in the offseason. It's going to be a vicious, vicious cycle for quality players who are going to be on the street. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Well, uh, basically, our main thing is to get a second DB. Um, I've been following the guy from Alabama, Patrick Sertan, the second. I just hope he's available when the times comes around. But, I mean, that's down the road. But right now, um, we're going to need some help with um, for Bradbury because um, Ryan Lewis has gotten beaten two times huge that reflect us losing some games recently. Well, mm-hmm. there's no doubt about it, Dexter, and I appreciate the phone call. They're looking for consistency opposite James Bradbury. I think every single game we've talked about how opposing teams are targeting that position. So I think that goes without saying. And, you know, before you really focus on the defensive line, the interior, I think it goes back to, Paul, what we were talking about earlier. You want to beef up the pass rush and continue to bring in more and more guys that can get after the quarterback. No disrespect to Dalvin Tomlinson. I mean, the interior pressure helps the guys on the edge. But I think if you were talking about more of a priority at this point, if we're to look ahead of roster construction, I would say who's going to get sacks? Who's going to finish plays? That, to me, is something much more worth talking about than how many defensive tackles you're going to retain. I would think so as well, Lance. I mean, right now, if you just had to, and John and I have said this before on the show, it's way too early to even consider this. I know I think you've said it as well. But if you just went off the cuff without giving it any study or going into the details, and I hate to make those types of comments, I would say it's clear the Giants still need a Batman pass rusher in the worst way. And if they can get one of those guys, 
uh, boy, you'd have to at least show me some evidence to convince me to go otherwise. So that is going to wrap up Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate everybody tuning in as today's episode presented, as always, by New York Lottery. Get out there and play. As a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network brought to you by Investors Bank on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. Paul, always enjoy going back and forth. Look forward to doing it again later on. Interesting program today, Lance. Thank you. Indeed, and thanks to Patty Trainer for joining us as well to break down her new book. Thanks to Pearson for his assistance behind the scenes. You, the listeners, will be back up and running with Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live coming your way at noon Eastern. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.